Hello, good evening, and welcome to Broken Oars, Broken Thoughts, with me, the Northern One. The regular listeners among you will know that the Broken Thoughts episodes are usually when one of us, usually Lewin, because he has the high-class brain, sits down and has a ramble through a topic that's kind of interesting and that's piqued his interest over the preceding week that might not make it to a regular podcast episode. Um, hello, good evening, and welcome. That was a that was the introduction to a famous TV program in the UK, and I can't for the life of me remember what it was. It's opposite, because it is a fine May evening, as I record this. The uh, the birds are singing outside in the apple trees. You might, you might hear them if uh, the microphone picks it up, or if they pick a fight with a passing gang of starlings. Um, it's a lovely night, so it is a good evening, and of course, hello to you all, and of course you are all indeed, you know, very welcome to be here and listening. I guess it's not as apposite if you're listening to this on your way to work at 7 o'clock in the morning, or you can't sleep, um, and it's midnight, in which case it would be a very good morning to you, and uh, I'm really sorry you can't sleep, maybe a little walk around, a glass of warm milk or something like that, a little reading of... Uh, a good book, perhaps put this podcast on because I am the uh, NHS's secret weapon in the fight against insomnia. However, this episode might be called something like Quis Custodiet Ipsos Custodis, which the Latin scholars among you, hello Hypatia, will know means yes, I will have custard with everything, please, uh, especially custard. And the more accurate Latin scholars among you will know it means who will guard the guards themselves. The reason why I'm recording this and the reason why I'm asking that question is because um, this Sunday, as I sometimes do, I bought the Sunday papers and I read an article about British rowing in it by Greg Wood. It was in The Observer. Now, uh, before our natural rowing consistency turns me off, because you only tune in to listen to the Southern one anyway, and you all take the Telegraph all the times. Let me explain. I get each Sunday paper in rotation. So I get the Telegraph one week, and then the Observer the next, and the Times after that, and um, never get the Daily Mail, because I can afford to buy my own toilet paper. And that way I can get my full dosage of bile, prejudice, and false news from all of the sides of the political spectrum. And uh, when I want to find out what's really going on, I buy Private Eye and read that. And then I fall into a despair and never buy Private Eye again until the next time at the state, despair at the state of the country. Um, In the Observer this week was a piece by a journalist called Greg Wood about British rowing. Uh, More specifically, if you want to uh, look it up, it was titled Science, Stopwatch and a Bit of Art, GB Rower's Mission to Rekindle Magic. And as a rower, and as someone interested in the success of GB rowing at all levels, I read it with interest and then uh, growing incredulity and eventually outrage. Now, that's because I felt that what I was reading was riddled with inaccuracies and some of the most mealy-mouthed and craven uses of comspeak that I've ever come across. And I've worked in higher education with management teams who talk nothing else. Um... And I got the impression that this wasn't so much a a journalistic piece about how we're setting off for Paris. More, it was to one end, to bury the car crash that was Tokyo and the mistakes that were made 
leading up to it, during it and after it. And the way that was going to be done was by massaging the narrative or representing the narrative. Or if you are a historian, and no, Dan, I don't include you in this. That's Dan Snow, by the way, not Dan Armstrong. Um, revisionism, essentially. If you've listened to Broken Oars podcast before, specifically a discussion of Jürgen's past in the GDR, massaging the narrative or presenting it in a certain way is something that British rowing is very, very good at and has previous form for doing so. If you look at the way that they talked about Jürgen's past in the GDR, it either wasn't talked about or it was talked about in a very, very specific way at the time. Now, we live in a UK that is becoming increasingly Americanized, increasingly litigious, and our national and local institutions, and indeed ourselves as, as a collective and as individuals, are less and less inclined to say, I'm, yeah, I'm really sorry, I got that wrong. That was my fault, that was my mistake. Because to do that is to admit liability, and to admit liability is to open yourself up to all sorts of things, anything from being sued to, you know, losing your job because it was your mistake that caused the nuclear plant to melt down. Heaven forfend that you lose your job for causing a nuclear power plant to melt down. Um, but I read through this, and I read through it again, and I don't know if it's the long COVID talking, or the low blood sugar, or the now constant ringing I appear to have in my ears, or just the fact that I'm, you know, middle-aged now and feeling more liverish than usual because of all of those things, I just thought, my God. I mean, that was it, just my God. You can't see this because obviously this is a verbal presentation, but it was just the my God and the expression of absolute horror on my face. So let's go through it together. And you can decide whether I was just overreacting in my typically emotional northern way, because we're famous up here. Men in the northeast are famous for wearing their heart on their sleeves. We're practically Italian in the way that we laugh, we joke, we sing, we cry, and we're always the first on the dance floor. Um, so let's see if I can pick through this with, with a reasonable command of language, or if I'll just descend into saying, what the actual fuck are you talking about rather a lot? So the opening paragraph kicks it off and the UK rowers are starting to put some clear water between themselves and their disappointing performance at the Tokyo Olympics. Let me be clear here, I don't think that the UK's elite rowers had a disappointing performance at the Tokyo Olympics. I don't think their performance was disappointing. I think their performance was flipping heroic absolutely heroic in the circumstances. They racked up six fourth places, a silver in the quad and a bronze in the eight. It was heroic in the circumstances because after decades of British success in rowing, stretching back into the 80s in the sport and a clearly defined and highly successful model of working, the management team managed to drop the ball between Rio 2016, Lewin argues for London 2012, but that's because he's, he's Lewin, and Tokyo. They dropped the ball, they put in, they let the world's best high performance coach go. The best high performance coach in history, go. They, 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 they let him go. They put in place new selection criteria. And they put in place a coaching model whose use in previous high performance programs around the world is defined by one simple fact. It doesn't work. 
Go and listen to our episode with Drew Jin to find out how badly it doesn't work. Go and listen to our episode with um, Andy Hodge to find out why coaching by committee has never worked in any elite high-performance program, rowing program. So I think the rowers performed heroically. The people who get paid the most amount of the lottery funding to provide them with the platform to perform didn't perform heroically and they didn't provide them with a platform to perform. And in remaining largely silent after Tokyo, and in launching a revision of history like the one that I read on Sunday, they're continuing to act pretty damned unheroically. I know why they're doing it. They have mortgages to pay and they want to keep their jobs, which are prestigious, uh, which are well paid, which have pension plans attached, which help them to pay for their house and send their children to school and have a holiday every, every you know, a couple of times a year and all of those kind of things. But the reality is the athletes performed to the best of their ability, the platform and pathway that was built for them to perform wasn't good enough. Next paragraph. The nearly 25 million of mostly lottery-based funding sent 41 rowers to Japan, more than any other nation in the competition, and the silver and the bronze were all that they had to show for it. The money that the article mentions is spent on lots of different things. It's spent on infrastructure, it's spent on boats, it's spent on transport, it's spent on training camps. And in Britain's case, as Drew Jim pointed out in the episode we, we did with him a, a couple of weeks ago, it's spent on lots and lots of people. His point about the Australian Institute of Sport was most of the money there was spent on infrastructure, resources and facilities. And as he saw it, most of the money that Britain spends on its rowing program and its lottery funded programs is spent on people. You have upper tier management, you have middle management, you have team managers, you have administrators, you have physios, you have psychologists, you have coaches in various roles, you have assistant coaches, you have nutritionists, you have sleep coaches, and, and, and. And as Eric Murray pointed out, it's not the athletes who get paid the bulk of this money. The David Tanners of this world will get their 300k a year and their, their index fund linked pension and their, their payout, their, their payoffs and their performance review bonuses and all of the rest of it. I'm guessing about the, the performance review bonuses, but it's pretty standard for most upper tier management to have some kind of bonus structure in place. By and large, if they're lucky, an athlete on a national high performance program, and I'm going on what Eric has been saying, will earn somewhere just above the minimum wage. And what is more, they will do so in the form of a bursary. So they're not employed, which is something that Jess Varnish found out from British Cycling, much to her cost. So that bursary means that if anything happens to you, the program you are on is not liable. You are not covered by UK employment law if something happens or someone does something that's unacceptable or something, including your back, your hips, your career, your knees, whatever, gets completely and utterly fucked up. Next paragraph. It is against this backdrop of disappointment and recrimination and a budget cut to about 22 million that British rowing has set out on the short three-year cycle that leads to Paris in 2024. Well, firstly, 
This short three-year cycle is exactly the same for every other Olympic nation as it is for Britain. The Olympic community has not got together and decided to pick on Britain by making it harder for them. And the simple reality is that that timescale is the same as us as it is for everyone else. In the same way that the timescales that were disrupted by COVID were exactly the same for us as they were for everyone else. The difference is that everybody else coped a lot better with how COVID impacted their high performance programs. With of the, of what was going on with the, the loss of Jürgen and the implementation of new structures, they just dealt with it better and we didn't. And the people who are paid to deal with it obviously didn't do as good a job as the other nations because the other nations ended up winning more. It's really as simple as that. It is against this backdrop of disappointment and recrimination. Um, hold on, what backdrop of disappointment and recrimination? There has been very little disappointment and recrimination. As Dan Armstrong, who's recently been on the podcast, pointed out, it's been tumbleweed. It's been nothing. Yes, on the days when we lost things, there was a few outbursts of splenetism. Matthew Pinson asked some pointed questions on the landing stage. James Cracknell wrote a few articles in the newspapers that he writes for. But the most successful Olympic programme in the British system, and I will always call it that because the one thing that British rowing has that um, British cycling doesn't have is no baggage, no Richard Freeman, no Jiffy bags, no tester gel, no one rogue wolf bringing down an entire organisation all by himself. No negative buts. No questions asked. None of those things. British cycling has more medals, yes, but British rowing did it without drugs, dodgy doctors, court cases and coaches telling women to go away and have babies. Now... The budget cut of about 2.2 million is expected given that the team currently in place took British rowing from being our most successful Olympic sport to a car crash in the space of one Olympic cycle. We didn't hit our, our medal targets, therefore we're going to lose money. That's just the simple reality of it. With regards to the backdrop of disappointment and recrimination, um, again, what disappointment, what recrimination? What mere culpas? No one's come out and said the athletes did everything we asked them to. We got it wrong with our structure. We got it wrong with our COVID response. We got it wrong with our pre-games preparation. We got it in the way that we approached our crews and our fleet and our selection. No one. We had Dan Armstrong from Tyne United and Durham University Boat Club um, on a little while ago. And he knows a member of the four who is privately telling people that it's his fault that the four lost, ending Britain's dominance in the men's heavyweight coxless force category and it's absolute bullshit it's it's really disappointing that that an athlete is taking it all on himself because it's it's bull regardless of whose fault it was that there was a twitch in the steering and then an, an over complication that saw the boat veer across the course like a toddler on a scooter in a park for the first time that situation should never have arisen you knew that we you knew i'm talking to british rowing now you knew that we were going to be competing on the seascape you knew that it was choppy you knew that it was bouncy you knew that there were winds how, how much prep did you do for that how many times did you take them out on the course how how much you know 
bouncy water did he manage to generate at Caversham to get them used to it? And even if they did make the mistake in in the steering and the overcorrection, which we've let's be honest, as rowers, even the best of us, and I'm not suggesting I'm the best of us, has all we've all done it. And having done it, Jurgen would have stepped forward and said, That's my fault. Because he would have done that because he always stepped forward and said it was the athletes who won this, not me. He was always there to defend his athletes when they needed to be defended and he was always there to give the credit to the athletes when the athletes deserved the credit. He never threw his athletes under the bus. He never hung them out to dry. He never expected them to take on blame for something that wasn't their fault. He never hid behind a review process. One of the most dominant cycles in British sport ended that day and it will not happen again in my lifetime and it probably won't happen in, in most of our lifetimes. Um, it was an unprecedented run. It was always going to end but it didn't have to end in Tokyo because the four was good enough to win. It's really as simple as that. And people who listen to this and go, oh yes, well they didn't. Well they didn't. Yeah, the athletes were good enough to win. The platform and the pathway that was setting them up for that shot was, didn't put them in the right place to be able to execute that shot. And the person responsible for that boat should have committed Harry Kiry in front of the Lions at Trafalgar, in front of a watching nation. Because as Dan Armstrong pointed out, the backdrop of disappointment and recrimination, there hasn't been one. It's been tumbleweed. It's been absolute tumbleweed. The article goes on. It needs to identify what went wrong in Tokyo and find solutions, and also what went right as a foundation for rebuilding. There are new names and a fresh approach in many of the senior coaching roles, while the rolling process of team building has brought some promising young rowers into the programme to replace the veterans who have left. Oh my good God, where to start with this idea that a rolling process of team building was in place and that there are some promising young rowers in the programme? It's rubbish. Firstly, the veterans didn't leave after Tokyo. They left after Rio, after hanging up, hanging around after London. And why wouldn't you? London was a celebration of everything good about British sport, even though it was budgeted for two billion, eventually cost us nine billion. And despite us being promised a legacy of, of a healthier, more active and more sports engaged nation, we're now fatter, more obese and unfitter than we've ever been. The lack of team rejuvenation has been evident since 2012. British rowing had five years from Rio to Tokyo to bring these young talented rowers that it's talking about through and the results show that the approach that they took for doing that didn't work and the, the line as for a fresh approach in the senior coaching roles the fresh approach was in place was in place before Tokyo the fresh the approach changed between Rio and Tokyo and it didn't deliver medals and that fresh approach why have one in the first place? Jürgen's approach wasn't fresh. Oh, that's terrible. Yes, it wasn't fresh. It wasn't fresh. Bloody work though, didn't it? We'll come back to Jürgen in a moment because there's some great management speak slate of hand in this article um, that eventually makes him the culpable figure for British Rowing's failure in Tokyo, even though he was no longer there and the approach that he pioneered and refined had been changed to one that didn't work. Let's move on to what the article says about the new performance director, Louise Kingsley. So, and I quote, Louise Kingsley, who was appointed director of performance in December, radiates enthusiasm for the job at hand. The first woman to hold the top coaching job in British rowing, 
moved into the role after heading the Paralympic program in Tokyo, which outperformed the Olympic squad in no uncertain terms by winning two of the four golds on offer. It's a bit of science and a stopwatch and a bit of art, she says. One of the things we look for in our head coaches is the real deep understanding of looking to see where the magic combinations are. We can see from our data and stats where we've got outstanding individuals, but there are only two single sculling slots on our Olympic team. Everything else is a crew boat, so it's about how individuals blend together, work in harmony, physically, psychologically, technically, and in order to find the magic. Well, first of all, you might have one or two outstanding, we might have individuals in the team, but the idea that there are only two single sculling slots that they're going for is a red herring. Because scullers are scullers and sweep rowers are sweep rowers. It's really that simple. Everyone in the squad is not fighting to be in the single. So let's just kind of deal with that. And that's just where to start, okay? She radiates enthusiasm for the job. Great, a cynic might say. Of course she should. She's going to get paid. They might also add cynically that, yes, it's amazing she's radiating such enthusiasm, given the hospital past nature of the role. Enthusiasm for the job? Boris Johnson has had an enthusiasm for well-paid, high-responsibility jobs throughout his life, but he's been abysmally shit at all of them. One, the good thing that can be said about Louise is that she's got a solid track record in the Paralympic program, which did outperform the Olympic squad. So we've dealt with the idea that somehow we're having to, having to hold athletes back from getting in the single skull and force them into crew boats, when the reality is that the scullers that are there for the single are there for the single, but the vast majority of the athletes that are there were always looking at being in crew boats, okay? and she's enthusiastic, well, that's great, because she's in a hospital, she's, she's got a hospital pass, you know, after Jürgen, she can either carry on what Jürgen's done and get us back to winning ways, or she'll be the next one in after, she'll be the next one in after the next one after, after Jürgen, and we'll, that was the golden age, and it doesn't come back. The sentence, it's a bit of science and stopwatch and a bit of art. Okay, I'll give Louise that. Um, anyone who's ever experienced moving a boat well knows that there is something when it works when it clicks there's something almost mystical about it and it's that life-affirming synergy of when fitness and technique and water and movement blend and you just feel like you're flying you can you can you've got so much time and and the boat is moving faster but you have more time in it and it's just it's wonderful we all know it that's why we keep coming back to it one of the things we look for in our head coaches is the real deep understanding of looking to see where the magic combinations are. What, you, you mean like the real deep understanding of looking to see where the magic combinations are that Jürgen had, the man whose role was changed and then who was let go before Tokyo? We can see from our data and stats where we've got outstanding individuals, but there are only two single sculling slots on our Olympic team. Everything else is a crew boat. So it's about how individuals blend together, work in harmony, physically, psychologically, technically, in order to find the magic. Well, we've dealt with this, the first bit, okay? The athletes currently with the squad are not fighting to get the two slots in the single. Most of them are there because they know that they're going to be in crew boats. That's the reality of it. These single scholars and scholars are going to be going for the single. Everyone else is going to be in a sweep boat, in a crew boat, okay? So it's not kind of some wicked plan by the Olympic community to deny Britain its outstanding scholars all over again. It's about how individuals blend 
work in harmony physically, psychologically, technically in order to find the magic. So it's about it's about rowing then, is it? It's about rowing as a crew together, is it? Because they're all of the things that, that you have to do as a rower to make a boat move well. They're all of the things that you have to blend and refine and mesh and merge and make work to move a boat well. The simple reality is British rowing standardised the stroke so it could move rowers about from crew to crew without them needing to spend necessarily a whole four-year cycle together in order to win a gold at the Olympic Games. But to follow on from the above, anyone who's ever been in a crew that's going for something knows that you have to spend time together for to click. As Dan Armstrong, Eric Murray and Drew Jin have all said on this very podcast, Britain's standardisation was so you could move things about like, like Lego pieces to create an identikit crew that would be pretty good, that would give you about 80% of what the athletes involved and that boat could do on any given day. But it's actually the specialisation and the experimentation and the miles and the miles and the miles and the effing miles that make the magic. And it's within those miles and it's within that time together that you actually blend the physicality and you blend the physiologies and you blend the differences in technique and you experiment with things and you you find the overlaps within the psychology you find the things that that work and the things that don't and you strengthen the things that work and you work on and eradicate or replace the things that don't and you build your crew that way there's no magic rowing isn't magic Gandalf doesn't come down a tiny United and wave a wand over our boats on a Saturday morning going, Today you will have a good outing and when you get to Scotswood Bridge you shall not pass. Doesn't happen. Moving on. Erg scores from individual performances on high-tech rowing machines play a part in the process, but no more than that. High-tech rowing machines. This is on The Journalist, okay? The Concept 2 has been around for decades. It's a basic design and it hasn't changed. You sit on it and you pull and it measures how far, how fast and your power output as it has done for decades. It's about as high tech. It's just not high tech, really. Club rowers, indoor rowers, gym bunnies, crossfitters, retirees, kids all use them. You couldn't get less high tech if you measured performance using a stick and a hoop. It's been around for decades and that data is, is vital. It is vital. Why? Because your erg score is a pretty good indicator of how fast, you, how fast you'll be able to shovel a boat backwards down a river. It's really that simple. In my 20 odd years as a rower, I've only met one who was so magical in a boat, who was so damn good in a boat that the fact that his best 2k score was 30 seconds slower than mine didn't matter. And that person was Mark Hancock. And I met loads of rowers who went, oh, I, should, I, I know my 2K score isn't that good, but I should be in the boat because of my technique. And you put them in the boat, and it's, they're crap. And the boat moves worse with them in. Which brings us to our next act of sophistry in this article. And I quote, When you watch crews going around, there are some crews that just click. Well, that's bollocks. Kingsley says, Many of our historic Coxless 4s, yes, we've had the powerhouses in them, the big guys with the big lung capacities, the big VO2 maxes, the massive earth goals, but then the fourth person in the cruise is the crew maker, who harnesses them together in a way that brings out the best in everything. It's not always about the four biggest erg scores in a boat, and that boat will then be the fastest. I'd, I really don't know where to start with it, but I'm going to get stuck into it. I'm going to get stuck into it anyway.
let's call this the Tim Foster fallacy. The idea that in, in Britain's in Britain's medal-winning boats, there's one rower who makes it work. There is the crew maker who makes it click. Oh yes, we've got the meat heads, we've got the you know, we've got the Moes, we've got the Mats, we've got the Steves, we've got the Jameses with the big scores. But let's be honest, lads and lasses, those big meatheads with the big scores, they're basically incapable of putting an oar into the water and getting it out again without a technical wizard to help them do it. Here, this is how you fashion your gate, meathead. I know it's hard for you. Oh, thank you. I wouldn't know how to do it without you, but I've got a great erg score. What a load of absolute nonsense. And the other side of that is the idea that the technical wizard is some, some form of weakling whose magical technique makes up for the fact that their 2k score is shit and they need the meatheads to pull them down the river. This isn't Lord of the Rings. You know, you don't need Aragorn to look after Frodo because Frodo's basically short and a whining little shit. Everyone in a boat has a role to play, yes, I will grant you that. But the reality is that it's this idea, the crewmaker, rubbish, rubbish. The idea that Matt and Steve were meatheads who needed Tim in the boat to smooth out their technical flaws is nonsense. Look at Steve Redgrave. He won Olympic medals on both sides of the boat. So he could row with equal facility on stroke side and on bow side. He rowed at stroke and won Olympic gold medals. He rowed at bow and won Olympic gold medals. Um, he rowed at two and won Olympic gold medals. He rode while steering and won Olympic gold medals. He rode while making all of the calls and won Olympic gold medals. And at the time that he was doing that, he was probably Britain's best international scholar for most of that period as well. Oh yes, but James Cracknell, he, he, he was, he was, listen, we take the piss out of James Cracknell on Broken Oars podcast because we, we think that his, his hair has its own camera team. Um, but I've heard a lot said about him with regards to his technique. He was in that boat because he was operating on a technical and physical level that was better than anyone else in the squad and probably as good, better than anyone else rowing in any capacity in the entire country. The idea that he's a meathead, ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, as is the idea that Tim Foster was so, was so weak he needed the big lads to carry him down the course. What, really? Did they did they help him get in the boat as well because his, his, his little legs couldn't manage the walk from the boathouse to the landing stage? Pull the other one. It's got bells on it. My understanding of that four, based upon the data that I've seen and that's been made available in various memoirs and, and accounts of that time, is that, yes, Tim wasn't as fast as Matt and James, um, but he was still one of the four fastest rowers in the squad. And to carry it further, the four in Beijing and London, look at it, look at the way the seating was moved around between you know, Andy Hodge and Pete Reed and uh, Tom James and, and Alex Gregory and Steve Williams. Do you honestly think that any of those personalities would want to be called the crew maker? Oh yes, Andy's got the blonde hair and Pete, Pete had the, the lungs, but I was the crew maker. Good God, they would absolutely cringe. Do crews have to blend? Yes, of course they do. Of course they do. Is it magic? No. It's miles together, hard work, good crew technique. Do the big lads need the technical wizard to show them how to get the oar in the gate? No, they don't. If you're a crew, you're all responsible for making it go fast. 
That's it. New paragraph. It is 18 months since Jürgen Grobler last supervised the training and crew building at Caversham, but the sense of his legacy is everywhere. Crews under his wing brought in 33 medals in 8 Olympic Games. The National Training Complex, something that few Olympic sports can enjoy, is named after the pair who won gold in Barcelona in 1992, launching the former East Germany's coach's second golden age with Team GB. Visitors arrive at the door along Grobler's way. The National Training Complex isn't named after the pair just because they won gold in Barcelona in 1992. It's named after Matt and Steve because for pretty much most of their careers they carried Britain's entire Olympic hopes on their back. It's really as blunt as that. It wasn't just because in Barcelona they were imperious, and they were imperious, by the way. Go back and look at the footage. You will, Until Eric and um, Hamish, you will not see better pairs rowing. It's glorious. And with all due respect to, you know, to Dunks and Drew, and Drew, it's wonderful pairs rowing. Jürgen's legacy is everywhere. No, it isn't. Oh, but he has a road named after him. Yes, I live in the northeast of England. There is an Engels Avenue just around the corner from me. School children are not walking to school along it, going, we need to talk about the dismantling of the bourgeois capitalist state. We need to look at the, at the rising of the proletariat. They're not. They're simply not. Having a road named after you isn't, isn't a legacy. That's not a legacy. The structures, the criteria for selection, the training structures, the approaches that Jürgen put in place that made Britain a dominant rowing power are a legacy, and they were dismantled before Tokyo, quite deliberately and quite consciously. The National Training Complex, this one's on the, germ, on the journalist, that something that few Olympic sports can enjoy. I mean, seriously, Jeff, did you actually research this? Are you trying to pull our legs? I know that Private Eye calls the Guardian and the Observer, the Groniad, because you're 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 famous for your mistakes, uh, and I, you know, um, I'd like to think that you're probably one of the only newspapers in Britain that still does investigative journalism. But you could have investigated this one a bit further. Manchester Velodrome, Caversham, Bisham Abbey. There's over twenty different sports and organisations that are linked to lottery funding um, that train out of Bisham alone. That's before you get to Lillisall. There's um, uh, the English Institute of Sport is there, England Hockey is there, the Wynn Tennis Academy is there, the, the, where the England Football and Rugby Associations train. Come on. And then we get to the bit where the knife starts going in, in this article, in, in my opinion. And it could be the long COVID, and I could be delirious, and I might just be being really touchy. New paragraph. But even before Bujaski's post-race race criticism... Grobler's sudden departure after so many years of sustained success had raised questions about whether an uncompromising approach to training was appropriate for a modern Olympic programme. Hint, yes, it was. He won medals. It worked. While some athletes undoubtedly thrived under his supervision, were others perhaps paying an unacceptable price for their success? Well, Jeff. Well, Jeff, you started this article by saying that for 24 million a year, medals were required. That was, that was your currency. That was the word you used. That was the currency. Medals were the currency that kept the program going and kept the money coming in. So which is it? Because the reality is that the lottery paid the money and Jürgen won the medals with his athletes, which you have set at the start of the article as a minimum criteria for the program to exist. But you're now suggesting that this might not be an acceptable approach. And the other flip side of that is the lottery still paid the money when Jürgen wasn't there and we had, a, we, had a, we had the nice approach, and I'm using nice and in inverted commas, 
and we didn't win any medals, which you're also saying is unacceptable. So which is it? Which is the unacceptable bit and which is the acceptable bit? Because you're contradicting yourself. The current team of coaches cannot escape or deny Grobel's influence, nor would they want to. Equally, there is a recognition that the program is moving with the times. Really? Really? Pre-Tokyo, there was a concerted effort to get as far away from Jürgen's methods as possible by changing his program and his approach. And that went well. And post-Tokyo, Tokyo is now his fault, rather than the fault of the team who replaced him and the coaching committee that replaced him and the approach, the selection criteria and, and the approach and the crew selections and the decisions that were made after he left. So you're trying to leave him holding your can while at the same time as paying lip service to his achievements while at the same time as trying to bury him. Is this like office politics? Jesus Christ. Would Jürgen being here for the Tokyo Games have guaranteed that we would have been up the top of the medal table? No. If we look closely at the results we've had since Rio, we failed to perform throughout the whole cycle and Jürgen was there for a significant part of that. Well, actually, Louise and Jeff, it would. It would have guaranteed medals. Why can I say this? Because Jürgen has won something at every the Olympics he's been in charge of going back to the 1970s. There are no certainties of sport, of course, of course there aren't. But the one thing you can bet on, if you are one of the rowers and Jürgen's priority boat and Jürgen is your coach when you go to an Olympic Games, is you're going to win a gold medal. Because all of the evidence says that if you are a rower and Jürgen's priority boat and Jürgen is your coach when you go to an Olympic Games, you win a gold medal. It might be by the length of a beer can, as Matt found out in Athens. It might be glorious, like the four in Rio, but you'll win. Because that's what happens. Jürgen was a significant part of pre-Tokyo, according to this article. Between Rio and Tokyo, Jürgen was moved from his speciality, which was working with one or two priority boats where um, he had hands-on with them, where he had a proven record of success, to being stretched across the entire program. And I'm willing to bet, had you held on to him until Tokyo, and I know that we read all of this stuff about, oh, it was a mutual decision and, you know, we parted amicably and all of the, all of this stuff, I, I get the sense from talking around behind the scenes that he was bounced out essentially um, and I think that if you'd given him the one year extension to get us through to Tokyo um, I would bet what's left of my kidneys which I'm really attached to because they keep me attached to my life that the eight would have won I'm willing to bet I don't know I've just bet my kidneys pick something else liver my liver's in great shape I'm willing to bet the four would have won as well and I'm willing to bet that some of those fourth places would have been bronzes and silvers. And the reason that I'm willing to bet that is because that's what he does. That's what he does. He went, you changed the program, it didn't work. Now you're saying that he was part of, he was part of the pre-Tokyo. You're like the courtiers who kill the king because, because they want to be king themselves and then they get the crown and they realize it's not actually that easy it's not that it's not actually that easy to be the head that wears the crown new paragraph paul stannard who was appointed head coach of the men's olympic team in january was responsible for the team that took a first medal for team gb in quadruple skulls with a silver in tokyo yeah Paul and the sculling and the quad did fantastically. I believe Jürgen got a lot of things right and the approach has to be similar, he says. Yes. 
Jürgen got a lot of things right. And the approach with added athlete welfare understanding has to be similar. But then Paul is saying that because he's basically sensible and a good coach. And he knows what was in place worked. The athlete rotation should have happened between London, Rio and Tokyo. Far more than it did. But the approach essentially worked. Now, I'm not nailing any of the athletes that are mentioned in this article. Josh, who we've had a couple of chats with and who would love to come on Broken Oars podcast, Rowan McKellar, talk about their experiences in Tokyo and looking forward to the next chapter. I think that the athletes deserve all of the credit that, that we can give them because they're at the sharp end and they're the visible faces of, of winning, but they're also the visible faces of losing. And unfortunately, they're the faces that, tend, that have as we started this article with, um, their performance is the one that's hung out to dry. It's either celebrated or lauded. Whereas the people who prepare the platform for them to, to, to shoot their shot, tumbleweed. Science stopwatch and a bit of art. GB Rowe's mission to rekindle magic in the Observer last Sunday. The idea that we're buying into here is that we're about to launch into some glorious new cycle. The reality is we had a glorious cycle. We had a one where the magic was very, very clearly defined. Hard work plus great athletes plus the best performance coach in history working in a very small and clearly defined field of operations, small boats, one or two top crews, equal gold medals. That's it. I know enough about language to know how little I actually know about it, but this is a new modern speak, which I don't understand. The one where failures are designed as learning opportunities and situations where blame can and should be apportioned or whitewashed into mealy-mouthed statements that imply retrospectively that the iceberg coming towards the ship wasn't spotted, and then when it was, it wasn't reported, and then when it wasn't reported, there was a regrettable lack of action. But we were confident in our lifeboat situation, right up to the point where the rich people, the management, the management structure, all lived because they managed to make it to the lifeboats, and the poor people died, which in this case, the, the rowers. What, it's this kind of Orwellian Goebbels type doublespeak. And it's coming from professionals and journalists getting paid to indulge in it. We're living at a time when something can be published that, that, that has inaccuracies and fudges and outright misrepresentations of what's known and understood throughout rowing as facts with a straight face. And let's be clear, Let's be really clear. There's been a trend recently where people talk about their truth. This is my truth. And it isn't, usually. Anyone who's ever witnessed one of these travesties of self-seeking, self-aggrandizing, self-justifying, personal opinion masquerading as the other side of the story will know what absolute fucking arse candle these exercises are. It doesn't help that our national institutions now regularly present lies and misrepresentations as facts confident that nothing ever happens to those who use this approach in our daily political and social discourses. It doesn't help that our Prime Minister can display the sort of relationship with the truth that the most deluded narcissist would recognise as being sketchy. Because if he can do it, the logic runs, well, why, why can't we? There is no my truth and your truth. There is only ever the truth. That's it. That is it. That is it. There's only ever the truth. And as British rowing rebuilds towards Paris, 
it wasn't much in evidence in this article that I read, and it might be because because I've had a blow to the head and I'm just I'm delusional. So either the people involved know they were talking speciously, let's call, let's say speciously rather than talking rubbish, in which case they shouldn't be anywhere near a high performance or athlete welfare program or situation, or they don't know that they're talking speciously, in which case ditto. Anyway, good luck to the athletes. I'll be shouting for you, and you'll probably need it.